Welcome to the New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to David Hopkins, who has recently published Red Fighting Blue, How Geography and Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics. The book was published uh, this past fall by Cambridge University Press. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. You've been on before, uh, but, but welcome back with your new book. Thanks so much, Heath. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, great to have you on. Uh, because it's been uh, a couple of years, I'll let you uh, introduce yourself again. Uh, I'm not sure if you have a new title. I think you're at the same institution, but uh, tell us, uh, remind us uh, about who you are. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at Boston College. And you maybe were assistant at that point previously, and your previous book and the podcast maybe helped you get promoted at some point. Uh, welcome back. That was the, definitely the podcast. Right, yes, right. you don't, you can't, you, very much. you can't eliminate it from from consideration. It did happen, so it didn't yeah, hold you back. Let's just say that. And, uh, <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have read your book. Uh, I, I read your book um, in the warmth. We're now in the cold. Um, let's let's talk about it. Uh, this. This idea in the title and and what makes up most of the book of red and blue America, at least in terms of a phrase, is is relatively new, but it has these long historical roots in in more conceptual terms. Um, But in our more recent time period, uh, when and where did this idea of red and blue state maps appear first? The whole uh, uh, terminology of red versus blue, and more generally of the idea of an America divided on, in some fundamental political way and cultural way between uh, uh, different regions of the country, sort of sprung up in the popular consciousness somewhat overnight in the days following the 2000 election, which for those of us who, who remember was was uh, contested with a recount in Florida and, and uncertainty about which candidate would win. But the uh, electoral college results of 2000 created this very striking regional pattern with the blue states concentrated the democratic states concentrated in the northeast and along the pacific coast and the the sort of the the south and and most of the interior west as sort of the red you know red america and that sort of became a, a cultural meme um, at the time and it really hasn't uh, gone away too much uh, we've had a bunch of elections since then and yet the the same pattern seems to have held um, more or less a few states swing back and forth, and there have been some minor uh, evolutions in in the state alignments but as as far as the the broad regional pattern, it's just as true now as it was in two thousand and so it seems like it's more than just a fluke. there's something to it in terms of uh, the contemporary geographic coalitions of the two major parties. Now, you have this really nice um, illustration early in the book about South Carolina and Oregon, uh, two states that seem to prove the red and blue state idea, but but maybe um, tell a somewhat more uh, complicated story. So I wonder if you could maybe just retell that that illustration about uh, sort of the outlines of the, the recent politics of South Carolina and the recent politics of Oregon and why um, they're both red and blue, but but maybe a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's important to remember that when we talk about red states and blue states, the reason why it's so easy to classify most states as either 
safely red or blue is because of the electoral rules and the electoral system that we have, which is a winner-take-all system, which means, of course, that whichever party is the biggest party in the state wins the most votes, regardless of margin, um, is, is the party that, that holds power and the party that dominates the representation of the state. That, of course, can, to some extent, mask the more complex and heterogeneous alignment of individual voters within the state. And so when I use Oregon and South Carolina as examples, I point out that if you look at the actual distribution of the vote in a safely blue state like Oregon or a safely red state like South Carolina, the distribution is often sort of on the on the scale of, say, 55% to the majority party and 45% to the minority. So in other words, it's not like at the level of the voters there is complete unanimity or even a, a massively lopsided uh, advantage for the majority party. It's really the fact that we have these winner-take-all elections that means that a state that's 55% blue or 55% red at the voting level can be 100% blue or 100% red when you get to Congress, when you get to the Electoral College. And so when we think about the politics of Oregon versus the politics of South Carolina, we think about how Oregon elects people like Ron Wyden, like uh, um, uh, Earl Blumenauer, these are liberal Democrats. Uh, South Carolina elects people like Lindsey Graham, like Jim DeMint, like uh, 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 Mick Mulvaney and, and, and Joe Wilson. And so, you know, the, uh, the politics are very different at the elite level in these states, but that's to a large degree a function of the fact that we have this particular electoral system. And, and that's really a central part of the book is, is sort of pointing to our electoral rules and institutions as very key intermediaries between uh, the, the behavior of the voters on one side and then the identity and behavior of the representatives on the other. Now, let's sort of look at this a little more historically, and, and some of the book uh, takes place in an earlier time period, um, which is works geographically a bit different. Um, what was the relationship between geography and and party politics, not in our current time period, but but in um, the, the the periods that preceded it. Well, for much of the twentieth century, the the electoral map looks somewhat different, and 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 in part as a result of that, the the party politics was very different. So when we think about, for example, the you know the post the, the New Deal and the immediate post New Deal era, where we had this. Uh, electorally dominant Democratic Party uh, that was also divided sectionally, divided by region uh, between northern, more liberal Democrats and southern uh, conservative Democrats. And, and that was one of the defining elements of, of the uh, sort of mid-century party politics was the fact that you had this factional divide in the ruling party that was to a large extent a geographic divide. Um, and the Republicans of that era were also also had their own factions that that to some extent went along uh, regional lines. Uh, Republicans from the Midwest tend to be more conservative than Republicans from the coasts, for example. Um, and then starting in the '60s and into the '80s, we sort of have a different era where the parties are a bit less factionalized. But it's also the case that the um, the, the 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 geographic uh, uh, sort of constituencies of the parties are are less defined. Um, and during this period, we tended to, to see Republican presidential candidates win by large margins across regional lines and Democratic 
uh, congressional candidates the same, which were win large margins along uh, uh, regional lines. And and there was sort of an idea during that time that maybe uh, regionalism was dying out in American politics. Um, the South was becoming more of a two-party uh, uh, region, though the Democrats were still the dominant party there. Um, and a lot of people thought, well, lots of other things about our politics are becoming more nationally integrated. Why why wouldn't we expect the the parties to become less uh, regionally defined, um, and then so 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 the, the the current age where we have these these parties that that are are more ideologically distinct but also more regionally distinct sort of has has come as a surprise to previous generations of scholars. It's not something that was really anticipated in the literature or the the the, uh, the conventional wisdom of previous ages, and so we end up in our current era where. Um, we see these these very stable and distinct differences from one part of the country to the next, and it it sort of represents something of a of a change from uh, from the history that that immediately preceded it. Now, in in as you sort of just describe here, you, you're stepping into a ongoing uh, scholarly argument about uh, kind of the, the the polarization of the political map versus the polarization of of people. Um, I wonder if you could just describe a little bit about sort of where the two sides of that argument have been and, and sort of what, where your book ends up. Uh, do you sit neatly in one of those two camps or are you uh, placing yourself somewhere else? Sure. Well, you know, since 2000 and since the, the rise of red versus blue, uh, uh, you know, uh, discussion and, uh, and debate um, as many of, of, of our audience will will be aware, there there are sort of differing responses from political scientists. There's one school of thought that really says the polarization we see in Congress and at the elite level is something that's driven by elites, um, and it's something that most of the mass public really doesn't have a hand in. And in fact, um, we have this this sort of growing gap in representation between a an elite ruling class of politicians who are by and large, ideologically extreme, and a mass public that remains more or less ideologically centrist or ideologically inconsistent and is therefore not being represented uh, adequately. Um, on the, uh, and then, you know, we can just call that the Fiorina school, uh, maybe after Mo Fiorina, who's probably the most prominent uh, uh, adherent of that view. And then, you know, sort of opposing him is the maybe the Alan Abramowitz school or the school of people who say, well, actually, ideological polarization is something that's happening at the mass level as well, especially among the most uh, attentive and most active members of the public. And so we should think of polarization as, as something that reflects that re- does reflect democratic representation. And, um, you know, I've, I, like many of, of, of us, I've been sort of watching this debate uh, progress for the better part of the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And I, I think there are great points on both sides, and I think both sides are convincing on, on some of the points. Um, but I also feel that we've sort of been stuck in a bit of a, you know, may, maybe in a, in, a, in a bit of a, uh, a, a rut with, with going back and forth on this. And I think part of what's missing and part of what inspired me to, to write the book is, is a discussion more of how these electoral and constitutional 
rules and institutions intermediate in between here. That if we're going to talk about representation when we're talking about polarization or anything else, we really need to talk a lot about how representation actually works mechanically in this country. And it seems to me this is a big part of the story because the um, divergence between the, the, the red and the blue states allows for ideological polarization at the mass level by making a lot more of the country uh, safe political territory. It's also the case that the past moderate representatives of the bygone days, when we go back to think about the golden age before polarization, those were overwhelmingly Southern moderate Democrats, or they were Northeastern or West Coast moderate Republicans. And that's how we got all those moderates in office was because of these specific regional factions in the two parties that supplied them. And as the South has become more Republican and the Northeast has become more Democratic, the voters have been replacing moderate Republicans with liberal Democrats in the North, and they've been replacing moderate Democrats with conservative Republicans in the South. And so the, the polarization at the elite level that we see is being driven by to at least a, a certain degree, by these changes in the voting behavior of the public. And so rather than saying the public bears no responsibility for polarization, or on the other hand, the, the public you know, is completely on board with polarization and, and is completely driving it, I sort of come down in the middle camp on that. I think there is an element of it that is driven by the public, but a lot of it is also because we have these winner-take-all electoral rules and these other attributes of our system that really help to, you know, further promote the polarization uh, that we see. And so, you know, I think this is sometimes something we don't talk a lot about in American politics is uh, the importance of of our electoral system in, you know, in driving a lot of the changes that we see in, in, our, in our politics. Some would argue that the Trump victory uh, remade the electoral map. Uh, winning states that Republicans hadn't in several cycles. Um, to what extent is this true, or or is the lesson that you draw from 2016 uh, a somewhat different lesson? It's a great question. At, at some level, the map doesn't look all that different uh, in 2016 than it does in 2012. I mean, most of the, almost all the states that were firmly blue or firmly red in 2012 were the same in 2016. And what we saw was mostly states that had been slightly bluer than, you know, than red uh, in past elections become slightly redder than blue in this election. You know, states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan had always been close, even when they had been, uh, they had gone for Obama um, in 2012 and, and 2008. Um, and so, it's not that the uh, that the party coalitions really completely redefine themselves, but it is also the case, I think, uh, that that is important important lesson to draw from 2016 is again how our electoral system can really magnify the importance of small changes or small differences at the level of the voters. You know that it really only takes a few thousand votes sometimes if they're located in the right place um, to create a completely different outcome. Um, and what Trump benefited from was the fact that the voters that, that shifted his way um, were located in the right places, in those Midwestern purple states. And that 
delivered him the electoral college. The the, the votes that that went towards the Democrats were uh, between between 2012 and 2016 were just located in the wrong places for the Democrats. They did a lot better in California, for example, in 2016. They did better in Texas, but because of the electoral college, that was meaningless for the outcome. So I think we should think of 2016 as a lesson, not that. Trump has really remade the the coalitions of the parties fundamentally, but that when we have the close elections and the well-matched national parties that we have in the current age, um, and we have these winner-take-all electoral rules and the sort of the quirks of the electoral college, even minor changes end up really being big, big, big in terms of uh, uh, determining the, the, the path of our politics. Now, if part of the point of the book is to draw attention to the, the rules of the game, and, and if we also accept that, that certain dimensions of, of hyperpolarization may be a problem, um, are there, and this is not a part of your book, but, but are there reforms, electoral rule reforms um, that, that, um, that could change this, that could um, uh, work to, um, to uh, reorient the electoral map and, and maybe de-emphasize uh, the regionalism that, that is so, uh, seems so dominant as, as you read your book? Yes, there are. I mean, if, if, uh, if we take the most fundamental reform uh, possible or thinkable first, we could think about you know, some sort of proportional representation system, which when you, you have pure proportional representation, of course, all the votes sort of get put into the same pot to determine seats. And so it, it, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter where those votes are cast or where you you run better and, you know, than your opponent, um, you know, it sort of takes away uh, that aspect of, uh, of the system of, of representation. Um, even at the state level, I think, um, you know, a more proportional system might um, have some effect on, on who gets elected. Um, our colleague in, in political science, Lee Drutman, uh, as you probably know, is sort of an advocate of thinking very seriously about um, ch- going away from winner-take-all districts as, as a way to sort of combat polarization to some degree, that, that it would sort of make it more likely that you'd see um, moderate candidates get elected from from states that now tend to elect more extreme candidates. And then obviously, if we if we went to a national popular vote for, for president, um, it would change the way candidates campaign. It would change the way, um, obviously, the votes are, are weighted to a certain degree. And let's not forget the apportionment of the Senate, which is an incredibly important part of our current system, which I think gets a lot less attention than the Electoral College does, but in some ways is even more fundamentally um, a departure from uh, you know, uh, sort of pure uh, democratic equality. Uh, so I'm not saying any of these uh, uh, reforms are, you know, imminently going to be passed, but I do think we often don't even think about or, or debate our systems of, of how we hold elections or how we have representation in this country. We sort of take it for granted or just take it as a given that this is the only way to do things. And, and I think uh, it's important, especially in an era when the parties are so evenly divided, uh, to, to sort of shed more light and devote more attention to uh, the, you know, how these rules work and how important they can be in determining the outcomes. Yeah, this, this really interesting book uh, is, again, titled Red Fighting Blue, How Geography and Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics. Uh, David Hopkins is the author in Cambridge University Press 
uh, is the publisher. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Heath. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.